0: Well, good morning and welcome. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We've been in Acts now for a while, and uh, we've made it all the way to chapter 9. And so we're doing, doing good. Uh, I hope you like stories. Uh, I, I love stories. I, uh, if you ask my wife, I, I, I like, um, it's one of the reasons I like documentaries. I'm not sure if you're into documentaries or not. But one of the things I love about documentaries is they, generally speaking, uh, I'm sure there's some who take license, but they're generally telling a true story, and uh, they're they're trying to recount something that has happened. Uh, they're recounting it for the purpose of uh, the record, uh, the purpose of of making this known. Sometimes is to raise awareness about an issue or something like that. Uh, but it's also um, to, to teach us something. There are times when, when we learn, we certainly learn things about what's going on, things that have happened, and what that might mean uh, for us. Uh, well, the Bible actually is one giant story. You've probably heard us say that multiple times. But it's really important for us to understand that the Bible is telling one giant story, which we could call the redemptive narrative, the story of redemption. Uh, we could phrase it like this. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or consummation, right? And that, that outlines the, the whole Bible for us. That gives us this, this broad picture of what, what is going on from, the, from Genesis all the way to Revelation of what God is doing. And so all these stories within the story uh, are pointing to this big story, And so the book of Acts, for instance, the book of Acts is a story in and of itself. It is the narrative. It's the narrative of the works of Jesus continued on after he went back to heaven. The works continued through his apostles, uh, enabled by his spirit. As we come to chapter 9, we find a pretty well-known story. And this is the story of Saul on the road to Damascus. And most of us, or many of us probably, here this morning have, have heard of Saul or Paul, which you might hear me say either one of those terms uh, accidentally or, or whatever. We're talking about the same person, Saul or Paul. Um, here he is referred to as Saul in chapter, chapter 9. Uh, but, but we're seeing this, the story of Saul here, and we could call Saul's story his faith story, this chapter of of, of chapter 9, his faith story. And actually, every Christian has this story. Every Christian has a faith story. Uh, Yours might be different than Saul's. Uh, Maybe you were raised in the church. Maybe you heard the gospel when you were a young person, and maybe you trusted Christ at an early age. Or others, maybe you didn't come to Christ at an early age. Maybe you had a longer period of time away from Christ. And yet, when God called, you answered and you repented and believed and came to him. Uh, no one's faith story is exactly like another's. Right? Sometimes we might have some similarities in how we were raised or what we experienced. But, but no one's story is exactly uh, the same. But, but they are all the same in the essence Meaning this, that, that we all were, at one point in time, unbelievers. Everybody here, at one point in time, did not know Jesus. And at a point in time, God opened your eyes, and ch- a change occurred. A transformation occurred. And we call that transformation conversion. Uh, meaning we are all, uh, we were all born in sin, separated from God, and God moved in us. If, if you um, if you are a Christian, you have had this encounter, which means that you have been converted, you've been changed. And then you've come to Christ and then life is it's completely different. Or We could say it this way, life before Christ, meeting Christ, and life with Christ. So there was a life before Christ that you had. There was a life, uh, there was a meeting Christ, and there was a life with Christ now. And so for Saul, we're going to look at the first two today and the next uh, beginning next week uh, with the others. Uh, chapter 8 is the account of his story. It, it's a retelling of these events um, uh, of his conversion. We also find it in chapter 22 and chapter 26 of his own words of how this conversion went down. We'll refer to some of that uh, this morning. Uh, Saul's story may be one of the most uh, famous conversions in all of church history. Um, as as we unpack these details and as we see this, we're going to see some of the significance even uh, this morning. But we feel some of it even as we keep reading the Bible, and we learn that he wrote so much of the rest of the New Testament. But although it, Saul's conversion was dramatic and different than probably most of our conversions, it does teach us some fundamental things about salvation, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing on his word. God, would you help us this morning as we hear your word read, as we try to understand it, would you bless it? And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we hear of Paul's uh, life before Christ, his his pre-conversion, we could call it. Look at it in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, um, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So last, uh, last week, we were in chapter 8, and the week before that, we were in chapter 8. If you just look in your Bible back to the beginning of chapter 8, we find that Saul approved of the execution of Stephen, and that in verse 3, he was uh, ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we see that at the beginning of chapter 8, and the beginning of chapter 9, he's still at it. Saul is still persecuting the church. He's still doing this. In, in, in chapter 8, um, you, you have the word, um, verse 1, he says that he was destroying, uh, destroying the church in, in that, that passage there. He says that he's destroying. That that word destroying, uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, That this is used one other time. In Psalm chapter 80, verse 13, and it talks in that verse about a wild boar ravaging the forest. So this same word that's that's used to talk about a wild boar is the same word that that, um, Luke uses for what Saul is doing to the church. A little bit later in chapter 9, verse 21, we find that he is wreaking havoc uh, on the church, Um, Some have translated that being mauled. Uh, We read already chapter 9, verse 1, that he's breathing threats and murder. And this is said to be an illusion of the panting of a snorting wild beast. In chapter 26 of his own account, he says that, that he was persecuting as with raging fury. you get the picture here? This was not a nice guy. This was not someone you would like to see coming into your town, into your neighborhood. And John Stott makes this summation that Saul was more wild animal than human being. It's important to to note that this guy was was, uh, on the war path, quite literally. And so he was on this personal mission. Now, you might remember that Saul is a a Pharisee. Uh, Saul had no authority of his own to be doing what he was doing. He was just on his own persecuting people. He was just taking it upon himself out of zeal for the Lord that he was going to go try to stop these uh, disciples of the Lord. Now, he was going to go to Damascus, so we find in chapter 9 that he gets letters uh, from the high priest in order to go. So he's getting permission now. Now he's getting approval. Now he's doing it uh, with the right authority that he could could then Persecute these people. We see that he's pretty urgent about it. He's pretty aggressive about it. Uh, he's even arresting women, which was less common at that time. Um, this persecution, this kind of persecution, would, would be done by what we might use a different word here a, a zealot. They've heard that word, a radical, right? A, a terrorist. <laughs> that, that, that's the kind of person that Saul was. That's the kind of context that we get here in chapter 9 when when we see that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Like this is not a small matter. This isn't just someone who has a complaint against the Christians. This is someone who is trying to kill the Christians. This This is quite, quite serious. But what we find as we read through the rest of the New Testament is that Saul didn't think that he was doing something wrong. Saul thought that he was the one who was right. His zeal was I'm going to stop these heretics. I'm going to stop these people from doing something against what the Bible what he thought the Bible was saying. Uh, He took his his cues from the Maccabees, who took their cues from from Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, verse 11, who destroyed an apostate and turned away God's wrath from Israel. So we need to understand that though this guy is crazy, he thinks he's right. He thinks he's doing what is right. We're going to get back to that in just a bit. But his passion led him toward Damascus, which would have been a hundred and fifty mile journey north from Jerusalem. It would have taken him somewhere around a week to get there. Presumably, he's going there because there are Christians there. There are disciples who had fled from Jerusalem in the persecution. In this dispersion, they fled there. He's going to go. It's not good enough just to displace them. <laughs> he, he wants them. He wants them to be held accountable. He wants them to be arrested. Well. As he was seeking to arrest Christians, he was going to himself be arrested. Look at verse 3. Now when he came on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The first thing we find here is that, that Saul is confronted by Jesus and he, he, he's, we, we see this, this light, this bright light that he says later in chapter 26 was brighter than the sun. And it knocks him down, quite literally. It literally knocked him down. And we find that he was blinded by this light. So he's on his way to do what he thinks is the bidding of God. And He is stopped in his tracks by this light and then he hears the voice in verse four, which we just read, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which he says, who are you, Lord? Saul knew something was going on, right? Welcome Captain Obvious, right? Something is happening here. Something unusual is happening here. A bright light, that's unusual. A voice, that's unusual. And so much so that maybe this is... God, maybe, maybe my theology is wrong. Maybe this is, maybe I'm mixed up. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine believing something so strongly all your life and then in a moment, boom, it gets flipped around. He had lived his life this way. He'd been taught this. He knew the Bible. And in a moment, he's saying, wait a second, is this the Lord? And what does, what does he hear in verse five? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Whoa. (laughs) I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait a second. Was he persecuting Jesus? He didn't persecute Jesus. He persecuted the disciples of Jesus. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this, that Jesus identifies with his disciples. By persecuting a disciple, Jesus is being persecuted. Why? Because the disciples are the body of Christ. We are his body. What is done to us as is as if it were done to him. Christian, the way you treat another Christian, it's as if it were done to him. It's no small thing. There's no small thing to hurt a believer. There's no small thing to persecute a Christian they are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. But this must have been shocking for him to realize that this Jesus, if this actually was Jesus, then Jesus was in fact who he says he was. That Jesus actually was the Messiah. But the one who Israel had been waiting for. They all missed it. Saul himself missed it. Instead of fighting for God, Saul realizes that he's been fighting against God. Here he thought he was persecuting the apostates. In fact, he was the apostate. Paul's zeal was, Saul's zeal was misplaced. It was absolutely misplaced. It was absolutely sincere, but it was absolutely wrong. C.H. Um, Spurgeon has this great quote. You've probably heard this. Uh, I know I've said it in here before, but it's a great quote, so you're going to hear it again. If you sincerely drink poison, it will kill you. If you sincerely cut your throat, you will die. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must be right. We have a society that is absolutely confused with the difference between sincerity and truth. The idea of my truth may be sincere, but that does not actually make it true. Like, this doesn't seem like it should be hard, does it? Like, if I were to tell you that I am, I don't know, 6'5 and I weigh 350, you would say, that's not true. Why? Because there's some evidence that, that, that would show that that's not true, right? Well, that's still true today. There's evidence of truth. Truth is objective. There's objective truth in the world. You don't make up truth. I don't care if, if Webster's Dictionary wants to change the definition of words. They're not the definer of truth either. What is truth? Jesus says this I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who is truth? Jesus is truth. What else does Jesus say? John 17, 17. When asked, What is truth? My word is truth. And what does Saul do? Here he's confronted. He's, he's confronted with Jesus. He has this encounter with Jesus. What is he going to do? I's he going to stick to his guns? I's he going to say, "No, my way or the highway." That, that's good for you, Jesus. What's good for me is good for me. No, no. That's not how it works when you are confronted with Jesus. That might be how it works when you're confronted with your neighbor or your coworker or whoever. Not when you're confronted with Jesus. What do you want me to do? That's, a, that's what that's Saul's saying. What am I to do now? Jesus tells him in verse six, "But arise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do." In some of your Bibles, there is a an inclusion in verse four that says it's hard for you to kick against the goads, which is also in chapter twenty six, verse fourteen. So although this conversion was immediate, as all conversions are immediate, meaning you don't become sort of a Christian and then a Christian, you are, either are a Christian or you are not a Christian, it's not kind of one or the other, you don't have one foot in one world and one in the other, um, it, is, it is one or the other. Uh, as much as that is true, apparently, based on Jesus' statement to Saul, he, he had been um, pushing up against the, what, what uh, Luke calls, or what they record as the goads, or some of your Bibles might say the prick, uh, the pricks, or, or the sting. Um, what is being said here is that in some way he was resisting God's prodding, He was resisting God's conviction. He was resisting the the divine impulse to believe that Jesus actually is who he says he is. You need to know that that Saul was in similar age to Jesus. He he probably would have known who Jesus was. He may even have, have heard about him. He certainly knew Stephen, right? We know that. He, he heard Stephen. He had a front row seat for, Jesus, for, for Stephen's uh, testimony of seeing the face of Jesus when he was about to die. Uh, there, there's these evidences or these opportunities that Saul had. Saul knew the Bible. He had read the Bible. He would read the Old Testament. He knew it. So there's all these, these opportunities for Saul to get it right, and he wasn't getting it right. What does that tell you? It tells you it's more than here. You can know a lot of things, but that doesn't mean you believe it. So the danger for, for some of us who have been raised in the church is we know a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that we believe it. Knowledge, knowledge pops up. Knowledge is only part of it. Yes, you must know something in order to believe something, but you can know something and not believe it. So be aware that just because you know the gospel does not mean that you believe the gospel. And there's evidence of that as well. But Saul missed the point. He had been close to Jesus. He would have heard these things, but he missed the point. And all all the while, all these opportunities that he's missing, he continues in this fanaticism against the disciples of Jesus. But here, here in Acts 9, on the road to Damascus, on the road to continuing his his threats against the church, he can resist no longer. The grace of God is, in fact, irresistible. It is overwhelming. It will win. Grace does that. Grace overwhelms. When God calls, we come. Uh, John Stott says it this way, divine grace enables human beings to be truly human. It is sin which imprisons it's grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from our pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness as to enable us to repent and believe. So when the grace of God comes, we respond. That's, That's how it works. That's how it worked for you. Whether you identify it or not, the reason that you responded in repentance and faith is because the grace of God came to you. Maybe not Quite the same fashion it came to to Saul through a bright light and a voice. But it came nonetheless. It came nonetheless. And that grace turns on the lights so that we can see. Then we see Saul's response in verse 7 through 9. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose to the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And they led him to the, by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So in chapter 8, we see him uh, coming in. We see him uh, uh, doing things, uh, ravaging the church, right? Now here, now here, he's coming in being led. He's being led in because he, he has been blinded by the light. He was led by, by friends because he could not see. And here's the irony. isn't This, this, this is just the irony of, of how God works. The irony is that Saul had to become blind physically in order to see spiritually. And you know that God does that today too, doesn't he? There are difficulties that come into your life and they're meant to not push you away from God. They're meant to help you see that there is a God. There they're these opportunities that we receive that in God's grace for us to, to actually see him, to actually see what he is about. And so for three days, Saul is in Damascus. He is blind. We find that he's fasting and he's praying. And then we find that Jesus commissions Saul. Look at it in verse 10. Now there were disciples at uh, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now this again, this is a different Ananias than um, chapter five, because he's dead, so obviously it's got to be a different Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So Ananias is minding his own business in Damascus. And God comes to Ananias and calls him to take part in the healing and the commissioning of Saul. Now he was told uh, where Saul would be, the street that he was at, and that he would find him praying. Now, this wouldn't have been the first time Saul had ever prayed. Obviously, he's a, he's a Pharisee after all. But it would be the first time he'd be praying as a Christian. It would be the first time he'd be praying uh, through Jesus. It would be the first time that he understood God as Father. Uh, John Stott says the very same mouth, whom had been breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple, now was breathing out praises and prayers to God. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? This one who was first persecuting is now praising. Amazing, amazing. So for obvious reasons, though, Ananias, that sounds great. Like, okay, good, good for Saul. Uh, but what, why do I have to get involved in this, right? I'm glad to hear that he's praying. Um, uh, but I'm going to stay here. Uh, he was concerned. Verse 13, Ananias answers to the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many uh, uh, about this man. So news travels, right? News travels fast. This guy named Saul is, is killing us all, right? How much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. So his, his reputation precedes him. Uh, he knows about him. Uh, he has reasonable concern, obviously, that uh, he would be someone who, who could be bound uh, and, and brought to Jerusalem. Um, and yet God responds to Ananias in verse 15 and 16, and he tells him uh, that there's something bigger going on here, Ananias, verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, okay? The Lord's really gracious. He's not, he's not a jerk about it. He doesn't, he doesn't tell him nothing, but he does tell him, you're still going, okay? That, that's not on the table, right? So you're going, but, 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 but know this. This is why you're going. For he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now wrapped up here in these two verses, uh, one writer says are, are the foundation of Paul's letters. We find here the major themes of Paul's ministry, that the conflict between his ministry between the Jews and the Gentiles, the opportunities that he would have to preach before rulers and kings, and his call to suffer for the gospel, which as we read the rest of the Bible, we find out that Saul suffered a lot for the sake of the gospel. Suffering and glory go hand in hand. Some might think that coming to Christ means that life gets easier. I'm sorry that someone told you a lie. That's not true. Life does not get easier. Life might be able to be easier to handle, but that doesn't mean that life itself is easier. Absolutely not. In fact, we know that all who who wish to be godly will suffer persecution. We like to think that, that life absent of suffering is something that that is a reality. <laughs> that at some point the suffering will cease and then it'll be glory. It'll be all bliss here on earth. Not in this life. <laughs> it's not going to happen. That's not the the experience of the Christian. It isn't. But glory is coming, yet in the future. uh, Joseph Dobson says that suffering was for Paul the necessary wound that grace must give before it can heal. Let me read that again. Suffering was for Paul the necessary wound that grace must give before it can heal. Some more of Paul's words, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, in weakness, Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. One more, Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Suffering is a part of the Christian experience and it would be for Paul. And from the beginning, from the beginning, he is let in on a little fact that life would not be easy for Saul. So Ananias goes, look at it in verse 17. So Ananias departed, And entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now this would have been the first experience that Saul would have with a disciple of Christ. And he's blind, and he's waiting for Ananias. He knows Ananias is going to come. And in comes Ananias, and he lays his hands on him. And the first two words are brother Saul. These are good words. (laughs) Sometimes we call each other brother around here as though it's kind of just an offhanded statement. This would not have been offhanded. This is saying, Saul, your brother part of the family. Just days earlier, days earlier, Ananias is the enemy. Saul is the opponent. And now Ananias is calling him brother. Conversion is real. Conversion changes everything. There is a transformation that occurred in Saul's life and Ananias is pointing to it. This is what grace does. Ananias communicates why he's there. We see that Saul is healed, filled with the spirit. And then Saul responds, as we saw the eunuch respond in chapter 8, baptism. Identify with this Jesus. This Jesus, I, I, I want to be part of this. I want, I, want, I want in. I want to identify with this Jesus who, who died, and was buried, and rose again for me. I want to say that I'm with that. I, I'm one of them. I, I want the world to know what's happened on the inside by my outward profession My outward action. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost and 2,000 people come to Christ. In chapter 8, Philip preaches in Samaria and there's crowds that respond. But here in chapter 9, Ananias by himself goes to Saul and we see this one man, this one man being changed. We live in a metric driven world. Right? We want to we rank everything, we want to calculate everything, we want to count it all up. That's how we measure the success of something. What are the numbers? What do the numbers say? More, better, bigger, right? That's how we tend to think. But we can never know the impact or the significance of just one person who comes to Christ. And here, little did, did Ananias know what would happen. Why? Because our thoughts are not God's thoughts, Isaiah 55. His ways are not our ways. God's doing things that we don't know. The numbers don't tell the whole story. You see on, here's a story. On April, April 21st, 1955, a Sunday school teacher named Mr. Kimball had set his heart on winning a young boy for Christ. The boy was 18 and worked at a boot sale as a boot salesman in his uncle's store in Boston. After praying about the matter, he arranged a visit uh, with him at the boot store. Kimball said, uh, "Of that day, I was determined to speak to him about Christ and about his soul, and started and he started down uh, to the Holton Book Boot Store." He continues, "When I was." "'Nearly there, I began to wonder "'whether I ought to go in just then during business hours. "'I thought my call might embarrass the boy "'and that when I went away, "'the clerk might ask him who I was "'and taunt taunt him with my efforts "'in trying to make him a, a quote, good boy. "'In the meantime, I had passed the store, "'and discovering this, I determined to make a dash for it it "'and have it over at once. "'I found him in the back part of the building "'wrapping up shoes.' I went to him at once and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a weak, very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just the words I used, uh, nor could the boy tell. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love that Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. And it seemed the young boy was just ready for the light that then broke upon him. And there in the back of that store in Boston, D.L. Moody gave his life to Christ. Like Mr. Kimball, like Ananias, though pretty obscure, uh, though very little is known about either of those men, and most for us, certainly, yet they were part of two of the pretty significant conversions in the history of Christianity, in history of the church. It was just one man. It was just one. So if God can use Mr. Kimball, a Sunday school teacher, and he can use a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, then guess who else he can use? Right, he can use you. He can use me. You can put your hand on the shoulder of a person and say, you know what? God loves you. Look what he did for you through Christ. And the response is to believe and to give your life to him through repentance and faith. You can do that. Martin Luther says, we preach and God does the rest. Don't, don't, don't try to come up with some fancy presentation. Oh, that'll get them. That'll hook them. <laughs> you don't hook them. The spirit does it. And the Spirit did it here in the life of Saul, and he did it through a guy named Ananias. He got to be part of it. Brothers and sisters, our goal is not fame, it's not numbers, it's faithfulness. It's not receiving recognition for ourselves, but it's giving glory to our God. So the question for us this morning is, who in our life needs to hear the good news of this gospel of grace? Mr. Kimball thought D.L. Moody needed to hear it. Who do you think needs to hear it? Will your heart be so captivated by the love of Christ that you would actually say it? You would actually speak those words? Let's end with just three things. First, um, this is what we can come to know. Truly, all is grace. That's how salvation works. It's grace. It's always grace. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that he was called by grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that by grace, I am what I am. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, for we are saved by grace through faith. It's always grace. Again, Timothy Keller, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel and nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. Secondly, salvation is God's work in us, not our work for God. If you notice something as we read the narrative, or even you've, you've heard that narrative before, surely, Saul did not go looking for God. Saul didn't find God. You know, sometimes we say that. Someone's looking for God, they're gonna try to find God. That's not how it actually works. He he actually didn't even choose God, you might say. Actually, God found him, and God called him. And the response from that is to believe. Yes, we must respond, but we only respond because what did God do first? God came first. God moved first. As Saul was arresting these people here, we see Christ laying hold of him, Philippians chapter 3, seizing him, arresting him, if you will. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 talks about this light that, that shines out of darkness into our heart that we might see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's what we see here, right? The light of God shining on Saul, quite literally. Saul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, and the grace of our Lord Jesus, excuse me, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. God's grace swept over, and Saul responded. That is the Christian conversion experience. One last thing. Uh, self-righteousness blinds the sinner to their need of Jesus. Uh, later in his writing, Saul would admit that, that he was a pretty good guy. Like he knew it all. Uh, by the world standards, he was quote unquote righteous. That's self-righteous. Isaiah says it's, it's filthy rags. It's worth nothing. And if we're honest, we've all been there at some point, maybe multiple times, where we think, well, look at me. I, I, I did pretty good. God probably loves me a little bit more today because of how good I did. No. Self, self-righteousness blinds the sinner to their need of Jesus. Your goodness could never measure up. You can be the, the best. You can be nice. You can be good. You can be better than the guy beside you. That doesn't measure up to holiness. And that is the standard. Maybe your eyes have been blinded to your need this morning. Maybe today is the day of your salvation, of your conversion, of your change, your coming to Christ. Maybe you've been kicking against the goads, as it were. Maybe you've been resisting what you, you, you hear, what you might even know to be true in your heart. The question is, do you see Jesus this morning as the Lord and Savior that you need? The Bible tells us that time is short. The world is passing away. Um, the late Ed Dobson uh, said this once. He said, I think humans have the capacity to think they're going to live forever. He continued, you ain't living forever. (laughs) You're not. You're not. And maybe today is, is your Damascus road, so to speak, where the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines in. And you see, maybe for the first time tonight, this morning, your need for Christ." And we would invite you to repent and believe. As we close in prayer, here's a prayer that maybe can help you if you want to use it as you talk to the Lord. I'm going to pray it, and you can agree with it if you would like. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared to hope. I thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment on the cross, and offering forgiveness and new life. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sins and trust you as my Savior and Lord. Amen. anyone prayed that prayer this morning and you want to talk about that, we would love, love, love to talk about that. If you need to and you want to talk more about what it means to follow Christ, we would love, love to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Saul. This persecutor turned missionary this one who was rebelling, now this one who is preaching the gospel. God, we pray that as we hear this story, that we might all be reminded again that there is grace for all of us. No one is so bad that they can't receive it. No one's so good that they don't need it. It's for us all. For those this morning that don't know you they're sitting in their seat right now and they know that they don't have a relationship with you they're not trusting Jesus for their salvation they're not trusting Jesus for heaven God we would ask that your spirit might speak to their heart through your word even through an example like Saul and they might see Jesus as the saviors they so desperately need the savior we all so desperately need And thank you for sending him. We love you. We're thankful for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.